I'm pushing for a three-minute work week. Nice. <laughs> I like it. It's okay. going to be a very intense three minutes. It was only three minutes. But the yeah. training will be interesting to touch on because that was something that... You've got some questions. Got it all. You're feeling stressed, man. Got it all. Put on your GPS and... Got it all. Under the dirt, something is glistening. Download and listen to Tia, Katie, Chris, and Kirsten. You should got it all. Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. As a quick editorial note, we tried out a new recording space in this episode, and the sound quality was not quite what we hoped it would be. So we did the best we could with finessing the levels and adding filters and compression and stuff like that. Um, So you can mostly hear what we're talking about. Um, It's just like a little echoey and stuff. So bear with us for this episode. Um, We're figuring out some other issues and, uh, you know, we'll we'll have better sound quality on future episodes. Anyway, thanks again for listening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Be like an honest, are we recording? We are. (laughs) um, Because you never know when it's going to start. And since I am rusty, I wrote some notes for myself. It's okay. <laughs> I also love the cold opens. Like sometimes there's some really funny banter that happens. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, that's, that's going to be where we start. <laughs> yeah, so uh, welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Uh, we're here back in person for the first time in a real long time. Um, I guess let's uh, introduce ourselves real quick. Uh, I'm Chris Sims, he, him, um, the one of the hosts of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Hi, Kirsten Lopez. I am here, um, yeah, just one of the co-hosts. I am tired. It's been a long day. My brain is falling out of my ears, so I apologize ahead of time. It's so great. I know, man. I had to relabel a couple of bags like three times. Oh, no. Today was one of those days. I'm like, okay, it's it's totally the end of the day. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, excited to be back in person. Um, I'm sure I'll warm up here after like half a beer. It'll all be great. And, uh, yeah. I'm Katie Tipton, uh, she, hers, another co-host of Go Dig a Hole. Happy to be back here, and let's get this party started. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're at a strange point in cultural resource management, or CRM. Uh, if, if anybody listening to the podcast hears us say CRM, that's what we're talking about, is cultural resource management. Um, and that's uh, the, the kind of archaeology that we all practice. And Uh, Anyway, we're at a strange point in CRM where there's simultaneously tons of companies hiring archaeologists and very few qualified people to fill those jobs. So today we're going to talk about how we got to this point and what the path ahead looks like. And at some point we will discuss an article that Jeff Atchell and Terry Klein published in the most recent Advances in Archaeological Practice called forecast for the U.S. CRM industry and job market 2022 to 2031. And that article outlines the factors shaping the next 10 years that will, uh, you know, shape the the careers in CRM archaeology. It's a lot of numbers, (laughs) for sure, in this article. A lot of numbers. There's dollar signs in front of a few of those numbers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's one of those things that I feel like a lot of us who 
like to at least think that we're politically involved or somewhat follow um, what's going on at the national or state level with funding for CRM. Um, I myself receive the newsletter for the government affairs through the SAA. Um, so I've been following that for a number of years. And it's important, I think, um, but I have at this point, especially after finishing this article, just a, I feel like a cursory understanding, even after a good decade of reading this newsletter to... You're good. Okay. <laughs> like, are we... Did we press go? It's, okay. It's recording. I just okay. wanted to up the microphone level For a sure. little bit. It's going to get erased like that one episode. <coughs> it's okay. It's I didn't okay, mean to bring Chris. it back. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think about the one episode. I'm so I feel sorry. like every podcast has the one episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. People think we're lying about it, though. Oh, man. Anyway, it's a good sorry, Chris. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, I was hoping you would forget. <laughs> Never forget. Never forget. <laughs> The lost episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, as far as the the numbers and also the implications, the real world implications and how those numbers actually play out. Um, Like every year, especially, you know, uh, in election years and um, just after election years, I forget what they're, I think those have a special name, but it's... Anyway, um, when a lot of funding um, approvals are made and there's, you know, different um, budgets put out every year for government spending, you know, how much is allocated to cultural resources or heritage programs or um, infrastructure or um, what's another one, let's see, museums. Uh, fall under um, not cultural resources. I believe they fall under oh um, not antiquities. No, it's like the arts. yeah, the arts, arts and humanities. Yeah. So like the um, national is yeah. There we go. NEH funding. So um, I had a my undergraduate experience working in um, collections was funded by um, an MLS grant, which was through any, uh, NEH. So that's, and that's Museum and Library Sciences mm-hmm. um, is MLS, and then that's through the National Endowment for Humanities. So those, you know, that gave me my, my really solid training in curation and the techniques, and through that actually I learned how to read CRM reports and you know what all this looks like before I even stepped into field school. So, I think that's the Starlight Express. Is it the Amtrak line? You've been keeping tabs. I think it, it <laughs> runs around like okay. five five twenty in the afternoon. Yeah, no, that sounds about right. And it's one of the few that actually honks their horn as they go through. Yeah, it's it going so fast for the experience, <laughs> the passenger experience. No, I have no idea. Sounds wonderful. Um. So yeah, that's, I don't know if the, the train would have been picked up. It's pretty quiet on this side. Um, I'm hoping that uh, the, the like sound filter that I 
I put on it in post-process and he'll probably cut it out. Yeah. So, uh, well, now they think we're really crazy. You know, and uh, <laughs> talking about yeah. trains. <laughs> like, what train? We're just gaslighting all of our, our listeners. <laughs> Don't you hear the train? <laughs> Don't you hear the train? <laughs> oh, man. So yeah, that's uh, at least my my thoughts on this. Is it's it's just a really good read. Um, I want to sit down, as I mentioned before, everything started. I, I really just want to sit down with it um, for a, a, a time to really kind of digest a lot of it. Some of it I just kind of uh, glanced over um, <clears throat> to get a good idea of what what it's saying. But there's there's a lot of good greedy detail in here, and they did a really thorough job. I thought. Um, yeah, as you were saying, there's a lot of numbers that you don't always see in one place. Like we always hear there's money or being spending or whatever, and it's nice to see it more cohesively placed in an article and not going to tear it apart too much. I feel like they missed some agencies that, you know, they, they cut a sliver <laughs> out, but um, that can be in the next round when they have <laughs> another article come out looking at 2031 and beyond with all the stuff coming out. But um, Chris, I actually, it made me pause for a second when you talked about, let's get to the labor shortage you yeah. mentioned. And you said it was a prominent topic at the American Cultural Resources Association, or is it ACRA? Or ACRA. ACRA. I, know, it's like, yeah. I don't know if it's ACRA or ACRA. <laughs> some, yeah. some say it, some don't. Um, but they were talking about it. So I wanna hear what your experience was first. Like, yeah. did they foreshadow any of this coming up or? Yeah, so I was at the annual ACRA conference in 2019, and that was in Spokane, Washington. And the labor shortage across the industry for CRM was a prominent topic at that point. Um, and I do think they were foreshadowing it, but it was uh, kind of like leading into um, the industry facing, you know, like, hey, we're having a hard time hiring. And it's, it, it was going far beyond like from a project to project basis to like offices and companies were just becoming chronically understaffed. Um, and so like the political context at that point in 2019 was, you know, we had had three years of um, aggressive uh, "Quote unquote streamlining," as they like to call mm -hmm. it in the government, uh, and so like the, the, during the Trump administration, um, you know they were gutting funding for uh, you know programs, they were gutting regulations, they were gutting everything possible under the name of streamlining, and you know what we were finding was it was just a big mess, and so even even under you oh know my God, yeah. uh, all of this, <laughs> it was just <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, like, it wasn't quite the problem that it is now, where it's like um, every industry—it's not just CRM. Like, every industry is under understaffed, mm -hmm. and um, I think there's a variety of, of reasons for it. Um, I did take some notes. Um, yeah, so like in 2019, one of the topics of of you know kind of leading up to the the labor shortage was the trend of budget cuts to humanities programs in colleges mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and decreasing grad student enrollment and in <clears throat> in some cases uh, closing grad programs altogether um, and so that was something that uh, Jeff Atchell and Terry Klein 
also mentioned that that trend has continued. Um, and so, you know, that's having a big impact is like, you know, one, there's just not as many people coming into programs, but also, yeah. you know, we had a lot of people leave the field, you know, mm -hmm. during the pandemic. It was just like, I feel like it re, uh, it made a lot of people kind of reconsider what their priorities were, what they really wanted to be doing mm -hmm. and what their like wants, needs and deal breakers were out of, out of life. Um, and you know, for a lot of people, I think CRM became a deal breaker. Um, yeah, so I, I think um, I'll come around to the, the other notes later. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's going to open a can of worms. <laughs> I'm not ready to open that can of worms. Why not? Right I think we should open the can of worms, right? <laughs> one, one can at a time. Okay. One can at a time. Oh, We're not double fisting. <laughs> Apologies. I'm not here. <laughs> so do you still want to discuss about the humanities or do you want to? Oh, no, I just, um, just if you had some more thoughts on the labor shortage. I have thoughts. All the thoughts, I mean. <laughs> it has been incredibly hard and mm -hmm. I work for an agency to hire anyone the pool has been so small yeah. for the requirements set forth, you know, having either the degree and or the experience and we get less than a handful of people. I mean, there's a myriad of reasons of like, who are we reaching out to, but also yeah. it's just who feels that they are qualified. And then some of the candidates we do get actually really aren't qualified right? Yeah. to begin with. Like they have no experience in section 106 for well, that's HPA. Let's see. It's so much of an issue. I feel like the lack of experience with graduation. Um, I, we actually have one tech who is enthusiastic, um, a fast learner, a great team player from my understanding. I haven't worked in the field directly with them, but... Uh, did not have a field school because of the pandemic. That's true. Yeah. So they actually did a lot of in-person one-on-one training. They, I think, got lucky with their professor um, on site. So they kind of had their own private one-man field school. Wow. <laughs> Dang. Instead. <laughs> um, and and of course, on on you know when I talk to them in hiring, they're like, oh, oh you know, I. I I just don't have the field school. I know it's, you know, this or that. And I'm looking at, you know, the resume and I'm like, no, that I feel like covers it. I'm like, <laughs> it, it may not like be that checkbox, but you know, you've learned things that I didn't learn in my field school. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, everything from excavation to survey. Like I didn't learn anything about survey and field school. I learned that on the job. Mm -hmm. um, it's like I did, but I didn't realize at the time. I was learning I was more worried about getting bitten by a snake than I was Dude. but anyway scorpions yeah. yeah oh my gosh um but yeah I, I feel like and I guess this is kind of poking into uh, possibly the next subject is training and education but like um I feel like there's a, a shortage for a number of reasons and I think you you hit the nail on the head with that as far as like there are people who who've, who have that degree but don't have the experience that we need to get them on the ground running 
like it would require months or a season of infield training to get them up to speed. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's what I had. And I was, you know, I'm grateful to have worked with a small company that knew that that was part of their program as hiring on new grads. Like this is, we need to incorporate space for training new grads. The challenge is, is when like 60% of your hires are new grads, you can't finish a project in a time that like a proposal is, you know, set out for to be with, you know, ideally at least mostly trained people because you're training over half of your staff. Yeah, it's a very time intensive process to train people up on the job. And the company that Kirsten and I work for is really good at on the job training and professional development in, you know, all the positions. But it's a very expensive process, you know, just yeah. because of the time it takes and you know, then you're, you're talking about like if it's on an actual project, you're slowing the product down. So, you know, if you're throwing in somebody brand new on a project, <clears throat> like you're saying, there's got to be that kind of uh, balance of skills on the team so mm-hmm. that, you know, they're not the only new one. But what we're seeing, you know, in the, in the past several years is like a lot of um, a lot of people are brand new to the field. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're starting with a lot of, you know, the the skill balance has shifted to Mm -hmm. there's more and more new people and less and less experienced people yeah and i don't know if that's just because there's suddenly so much more work (laughs) so we're spread (laughs) a little more thin yeah um but i mean when i started 10 10-ish, 11-ish years ago don't date yourself just Probably a little more than half of the techs that I worked with are no longer working in archaeology. Yeah. And like I ran into one guy, we ended up hiring that I'm like, dude, I worked with you on like my first project. <laughs> like this was I haven't seen you in a decade. And he recognized me when he walked in the door to do his hire paperwork. And so we, you know, shot the shit a little bit and that was kind of fun. But I it's so if people haven't advanced and continued on their career, I don't see a lot of people that are still here. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because as much as technicians are the bread and butter of our work, I think the the our field really undervalues that. And that's a whole different conversation, but <laughs> <laughs> like there were times where, as a technician, I barely was able to make ends meet as a single parent. And mm-hmm. I, in retrospect, questioned how I was able to do a lot of the things that I did. And I know people um, that, you know, they're like, how and why? <laughs> like, would you do that? Um, but it's it's something that it's it can be done. It is very difficult, and you need lots of support, uh, family and community support, and not you know you can't necessarily count on all of your employees to be on call at the drop of a hat within twenty four hour notice, but not a regular paycheck. Yeah, you know, like. That's that I think is where the rub really is in keeping people around in order to advance and go on to finish a master's degree because so many times, especially with universities shrinking their programs, they want to, uh, applicants for grad programs to have field experience. 
But if people have field experience, I'm not saying don't get field experience. This is definitely a thing. But I think a lot of people who actually get their toes wet in archaeology go like, what the actual are you doing here? Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm out. But I can flip that a little. So like that's a good segue of I've met a lot of qualified people in the field who don't have their masters, mm-hmm. who have their BAs, BSs whatever but lack the degree needed to move up in roles and find that super frustrating knowing that there's these really good individuals Mm -hmm. who know the ins and outs of doing all this stuff but then they don't get to move up because there's this checkbox saying you need your masters Mm -hmm. to be the secretary of interior qualified when they meet everything else except that master's degree yeah and they're like well i can't do anything because I don't have it and it's holding a lot of people back so it's like how do we change that training up Mm -hmm. and those are entirely the people that I've seen leave yeah we're losing the good ones (laughs) (laughs) no we're good too don't worry (laughs) yeah those that are like I mean it seems so silly to have to spend forty thousand dollars let's say or minimum I don't know 20 if you go to a state school and have like support to not have to pay a ton of rent or take out additional loans aside from your maximum that you can pull from grad funding with um, FAFSA I think is 10 grand mm-hmm. a year so a lot of funding <laughs> that is uh, yeah if you if you are able to which I Rarely, I don't know if I've actually ever seen someone finish their master's in two years for anthropology. Honestly. I didn't. No, it I took, took three. Took me longer than five. <laughs> <laughs> took me five. Took me a pandemic to finish. Yeah, yeah. I think. Well, I mean, yeah. Those of us who finished during or just after the pandemic, oh, we, you know, you can just subtract a year or two yeah, off that's that true. time. Yeah. Get, okay, so two. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, but. Like when I started, I think the average for people going through the program that I finished was five years, Mm -hmm. which is a PhD in a lot of other fields. So, I mean, there's another thing like our field has a high learning curve and it's not just, you know, the, the credit hours could be the same and the training could be the same, but the expectations of the things that we're supposed to know and put in practice is so much higher than I think in a lot of other fields. Um, I did my minor in geochemistry and I remember talking to my minor advisor and he's like, you have to what? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, and you don't, that's, he's like, that's basically, yeah, no, you should totally have your PhD and he still pokes me periodically. He's like, so you want to like just, you know, throw in your PhD hat? No. We'll just, I'm like, no. I mean, they are cool hats. They're better than... The, right? Yeah. They're so much better. The hats look really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I just want it for the hat. Yeah. But that's a really good point. Like, there's not just the financial cost of going to grad school. There's also the, like, add-on cost of you're removing yourself from the job market for you know two to three to five years or if you get a phd like realistically 10 years mm-hmm. of removing yourself from the job market you're not building marketable skills mm-hmm. aside from academia yeah. and even then like academia is such a like incredibly competitive job market that like you know the as programs are shrinking and uh you know grant funding is shrinking you know so on and so forth like 
<laughs> there's a lot more people coming out of degree programs than there are jobs and you know that that's kind of where my mind is at is because like there's got to be some kind of connection to like you know thinking about how do you get through a, a degree program whether it's undergrad grad school like master's phd like how do you translate that into a skill that will land you somewhere that will benefit you personally mm -hmm. like I don't know. It's like, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of traps that, that like people fall into where it's like, no, it has to be like related to a specific job, but it's like, it, it you know, maybe not. But you look at other industries like uh, engineering, for example, you know, like you learn a set of like, you know, a, a broad scope of engineering skills and you can come out as like a mechanical engineer or mm -hmm. like, a, you know, an electrical engineer, something like that. You know where anthropology is not that different especially with archaeology being <clears throat> in my opinion more aligned with the earth sciences which does yeah. lend to kind of more of a, a technical field mm -hmm. and there's you know there's agency jobs there's private sector jobs mm -hmm. um, you know I don't know so I guess like I mean that opens the can of worms like <laughs> we're doing it we're over the can do it uh, should degree programs teach job skills I mean a lot of it so I think this gets into what job skills like mm. because archaeology is a broad field I mean you have agencies government agencies uh, federal flavor you have a, a state flavor you have a county flavor you can do parks districts is something different completely ways. different yeah. um, there's uh, private firms uh, which is I think the bulk of the industry yeah. you also have museums you have interpretive uh, I'll say interpretive sciences which some people might balk at that but it's it's an art to do interpreta interpretation for <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> for uh, parks and for museums, and those are almost all left to volunteers, which blows my mind. I think I had more on the job training for a parks interpreter than any other job that I've had. Aside from working at Radio Shack in my early 20s. Because <laughs> that took three months. Do we need to explain uh, Radio Shack to some of our... <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Just, let's just say... It. How about just Google it? Just yeah. Google it. It's on Wikipedia. Radio Shack. Yes, Radio Shack. I had to take three months of training to start. Wow. Wild. Yeah, because we did our own repairs in there. Yeah. When I was hired. If and you had parts me. for everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you have to know a little bit about everything. Yeah, exactly. So it's a similar sort of thing. But um, getting into interpretation, like we had, I think it was like a weekend retreat, basically, where we did a, like a boot camp, basically, through the state parks that had all of the interpreters for that year. So it's something they did annually with all of the people who were in education roles and volunteers that worked with um, guests in order to be able to give the correct <laughs> interpretation as the state parks wanted to see it, not just have some random like white supremacist going and like totally you know mess up someone's yeah. thoughts on 
who knows what, but you know, it's it's very um, it's a it's a very delicate thing, I think, and I, I think with archaeology is not any different, which is why we have so much training because we deal with people, even if we don't actually physically interact with people, we deal with cultures, we deal with people as like a people, <laughs> all of the peoples, all of the publics um, as they stand. And we try and, you know, get groups of people to work together that are very different um, in their needs and their desires and their um, goals. And that's, I mean, basically our jobs to some extent. Um, I think Katie does a lot of that. Yeah, it's going great. <laughs> it's going really well. But I guess that, like, sh then should it be on the companies and the agencies to do that kind of training? Like, what? Yeah. I'm like racking my brain of what should actually be the basic skill set. Yeah. When you're hiring someone, what are you looking for? What do you need that you can build on? Because some things are learned on the job. There's just some things you cannot teach in school. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. You can't teach how to do tribal interaction in school. That no. just doesn't happen. That happens. But you can do intercultural communications to some extent. Yes. Yeah. You know, you can have some cultural training, which I think anthropology does an okay job at, especially if the program is anthropological in nature and not just strictly history or archaeology mm -hmm. but I feel like again depending on the program that's not pushed very hard for archaeologists mm -mm. yeah no you're not you're not told to take any really you're like this is a required course to take to help you be successful yeah in tribal even just tribal mm -hmm. law like yeah. no one oh, yeah. tells you to say hey you should take tribal law Take tribal law is what I'm trying to say. It's <laughs> yes. like to yes. understand like the context of what you're working in. Yes, tribal law, tribal history of whatever region you're in or yeah. interested in, what's available. I took a, a tribal history class um, in my graduate program that was specific to Oregon, which was really helpful. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there. I feel like that a lot of universities offer but aren't required and no. I feel like there's a lot of stuff that should be required um, I took three different iterations of a cultural resource law class and because I'm weird that way that <laughs> <laughs> was in one of the iterations you were you, you were <laughs> Which, but do you feel that was helpful like I came out of it and I was like I still don't understand anything because I felt like it was from a a very narrow lens yes. of how cultural resource laws operate. It was a narrow lens and I thought it was and so this comes into like the different ways that it can be done. So when I took the class with you um, the, the instructor basically walked us through and this was the thing that probably drove everyone nuts, was on the slides were the laws, like wrote. All of it. Like all of the it. entire, all the word vomit <laughs> was just right there in front of yeah. you. Yeah. So, so we went through a lot of word vomit and then we used that word, vo word vomit to analyze. And this was the so part fun. that I really appreciated. We used what we learned to analyze real case studies. And we actually had to sign like 
non-dis- yeah, yeah. non-disclosures for for these um, sites that we were analyzing because they were you know real things yeah. yeah they did not make the news but they were big deals or not so big deals in some cases but um, hmm. there was uh, the other side of that is I took a class with Madonna Moss at U of O at University of Oregon and that was very good it was very intense it was also a very small class it was mixed um, that was when I was an undergrad and she did it very much in case studies alone mm. so instead of giving you a case study to analyze it was we walked through case studies to understand why what and where she also had previous experience in CRM in Alaska and so there was a lot of like shitty things that you don't sign on to do there are shitty things that you might be asked to do like yeah. there was a lot of a lot of that and talking about ethics i think she headed the ethics bowl at saa for a number of years um so we did a mini ethics bowl in our nice. class and i'm like that is something that we should teach in universities as far as that question is there should be ethics and anthropology, ethics and cultural resource management, ethics in, in heritage and museums administration. For all of the different roles that anthropology and archaeology fill in cultural resource management that apply to this paper, I think that would be the most applicable piece. I totally agree. And if you're in CRM archaeology in a client-facing role, you have to know that stuff like the back of your hand. Because there's a lot of times where you know, I'm every every time that a client is hiring a cultural resource management archaeologist, it is because they need you to be the specialist. They need you to know how to get them through the compliance um, process. Yeah, the whole process, and you've got to, you have to be the expert. And you know, like for a lot of people, it takes a long time to build that skill set and so the earlier you start working on that mm-hmm. you know the sooner you can start to be in kind of that kind of capacity where you're either client facing or public facing whatever it is stakeholder facing um, it, that's a really challenging role but a lot of archaeologists end up in that and it's like it's really hard to yeah hit the ground running in, in that kind of role <laughs> yeah <laughs> thrown into that yeah, yeah they will happening. test the limits of your knowledge as soon as we start talking about that. <laughs> Hold that thought, please. Yeah. I don't know, but I will find out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... I don't know, do you guys have any other thoughts or ideas on specific training other than, like, ethics? Which seems so nebulous. <laughs> big. It's a big like umbrella. A, yeah, it's a yeah. very big umbrella to, to navigate because there's just so many... Like, we could create... 800 scenarios right here Mm -hmm. and not know how to navigate all of them because every time you do at least in my work section 106 when you navigate it every time is different Mm -hmm. like every project is different so like a project manager is like yeah I've done this before let's do this again you're like oh no (laughs) everything I told you we must now go this way yeah Yeah. we must now navigate it this way instead of this way like wax on and wax off right throw all your notes away yeah starting from scratch yeah we may have done this before but not in this way and like or it's a different set of players it's a different like people you have to interact with and i think that's again something i don't know how to teach that how do you teach 
people. I mean, we're not very good with people. Let's be honest. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> a lot of archaeologists, I think. Chris, you, you're fine with people. Like, <laughs> very yeah, you're a sales guy. <laughs> but like, most of us like want to be the ones doing the research, doing the work, not mm-hmm. having to be the people who have to navigate the relationships between mm-hmm. either the CRM firm and the client or the agency and the tribes. Like, you don't learn that in school no one talks about it how difficult that's the thing that always pissed me off like I didn't even know what cultural resource management is until my senior year I didn't know until I got a job so (laughs) like that's not something that they talk about but this is specifically the road that you're on Yes, there. this isn't just a pie-in-the-sky cool thing like philosophy that you could potentially do if you become a professor. Not to, like, poo-poo philosophy. It's I'm poo-pooing philosophy. It's, it's I got a cousin in philosophy, and he has a PhD. If you hear me out, his name's Chris as well. <laughs> There's too many Chris's. Anyway. Way too uh, many Chris's. Yes. Yes. Um, but, where was I? Philosophy. Oh, Yes. So and how it sucks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so people taking anthropology classes or specifically archaeology classes and this gets into freshman anthropology courses. Yeah. The way it's presented. Mm-hmm. It is not fucking Indiana Jones. We are not pirate researchers. We are not doing tomb raider like you would be surprised at some of the undergraduate courses I've seen offered at some of these universities. Yeah. But uh, I digress. The, the point being is pulling people in that are interested in people, not just nerding out on the things. The objects. The objects, which is a part of it, obviously, but that is the, the objects are the reason why we are communicators with groups of people and that is the best way I can put it we are communicators with groups of people yeah because otherwise if it wasn't important to different groups of people for different reasons then we wouldn't be here so I feel like the communication part is an important part the ethics part is an important part and then you have technical skills like yeah GIS Oh God! Yeah. And analyzing artifacts, just knowing like basic terminology mm-hmm. on a yeah. general level. Shard mm-hmm. versus shard What's versus that? flake. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. Debitage versus flake. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's kind of like more general skills, like um, like time management is is a skill that you know it takes a lot of people like years and years and years of practice to develop good time management skills. Mm-hmm. But good report writing mm-hmm. is one of those things that, you know, like in CRM, right. we see yeah. we see a lot of people come into CRM really struggling with report writing. And it's because writing a technical report is, it's kind of similar to the reports that you write in undergrad or in grad school, like your research papers, but not really. like. I think a lot of degree programs downplay like how difficult a technical report really is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yes, it has a lot of boilerplate that you copy and paste. And a lot of people get like super lazy about not checking the boilerplate. You're going <laughs> to get in trouble if you don't check the boilerplate. You always check your sources. Yeah. But yeah, that's the point. It's like you've got to constantly be updating your sources. So there is a research aspect to it. Like you've got to make sure that your mm-hmm. your boilerplate is... Um, 
specific to the project and also yeah. up to date. Um, and so that is its own skill. Like that's kind of like the ongoing research work, but then you have like very project specific work that's very technical and it's technical for a reason. It's like formulaic for a reason because mm -hmm. that's the format that is required by the reviewing agencies. And so yeah. if you're working for a client and doing this work in the field, you write a technical report with the goal of the reviewing agency signing off on it. So like all of it feeds into like this much larger process of like, why are we even doing this? And it's, yeah. it's like, because it's related to a specific project that we have to make sure is in compliance. And you have to be able to state all of the details about a project in a very specific format so that the reviewer can say, okay, cool, this project is in compliance. Yeah. You can now build a bridge or now you can bring broadband to a rural community or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and I think that's a big, a good point too with the, the technical writing because that's, it needs to be readable by people who are not archeologists. Yes. Mm -hmm. It needs to be readable in a way that is fast. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be cozying up with the technical report next to their like fire and what? cup of tea. With their bathroom and their bubble pipe <laughs> and their little sleepy time tea. All right. <laughs> They're going to be skimming through it and looking for key aspects of things that have been issues or are concerns. Mm -hmm. Um, to the different interested parties and these reports despite what everyone says are read over and over again mm -hmm. not in their entirety but they are read over and over again they will be referenced um, actually uh, queued up my uh, my supervisor because I, I ended up signing her uh, master's thesis I was like, oh, hey, nice. I'm including this. And she's like, oh, yes, life goals. <laughs> I'd be like, please don't. <laughs> Somebody read my thing. <laughs> so <clears throat> even if you don't think anyone's going to ever look at it again, because I swear I hear every archaeologist saying that, like it's never going to be read. It's just, you know, to check boxes. But no, in reality, other archaeologists read it, and it's referred to to make big decisions. Yeah. They make really big decisions and I think that may be something that's overlooked. Yeah, it goes into the, the gray literature that not all of us have access to but a lot of us do and when we use it when we're looking at the maps and like hey it's already been surveyed here's the report that touches on it but sometimes those reports are actually really bad or like don't hit on all the things and so other parties are like oh yeah no that's that's not acceptable anymore. Right. And things and you have change. to resurvey it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So like kind of thinking about that too it's like it's going to get used in those decisions as well of like oh we don't need to resurvey an area because it's already been done in i don't know 2014 yeah. it meets the 10-year minimum but it's like awful like there were no shovel tests but no place that should have shovel tests like trying to yeah, yeah navigate that yeah and that's where i feel like to some extent research design is important which is where it gets into the the master's requirement mm -hmm. But I also agree 110% that like if you have experience, on-the-job experience, going through all of these projects and you can write up and someone can like on-the-job train you to in research design, that's going to be more valuable than your master's thesis. Yeah, and being able to back it up too. Yeah. People are going to question you and be like, well, we did it because of this. Yeah. And you need to be able to... 
Yes, please. Same. Yes, please. You too. Yep. Same. Beer break. Cue the elevator music. I'm trying to quietly chew over here. I've been taking a drink of beer and pretzel so we can saturate it. So that's how I roll. Right. This is a really good conversation. This is good I feel conversation. like I'm talking. <laughs> no, I think I'm it's sorry a good if balance. I'm talking too much. I'm sorry if I'm being silly. I just like have gone through some stuff, and you're like, really, guys? Like, no, you're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm alone here in the office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so through some serious conversations, you're like, really? Why do we gotta be so serious? No, the only office that's near us is Empire Labs. <laughs> Not necessarily talking to people. Do you know what they make? Yes, I do. Yeah. And it's all very reclusive men, which is why that really cracks me up. They all reclusive men? Well, and a, a trans. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I heard that correct. They heard all inclusive men. Menswear? Reclusive is what I said. Reclusive. Not uh, <laughs> what they make is uh, dildos. Nice. Make, make your own dildos. <laughs> make yeah, your own. it's the make your own dildo kit. I don't. I don't want to know. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Empire Labs. Uh, go to empirelabs.com forward slash go dig a hole for 15% off your make your own dildo kit. Are they cheap? I mean, I'm looking for Christmas presents, but I don't know if that's <laughs> It's like, is that for, for him or for me? No. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> okay, it's just been make great. Sure guys. Don't, don't Google that on your work computers. <clears throat> It'll probably just get blocked. Okay. It's Maybe okay. I won't cut that. Out. I don't know. <laughs> I actually had a uh, wizard was blocked on my government computer for a little bit. Interesting. I was like, dude. Yeah, they were having I, troubles with it. Yeah, I was like, I literally have to use this for my job. And I had to make a business case to IT saying, like, unblock this website. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, this is stupid. Sorry. Sorry, wizard. Which kind of cracks me up because they they are really secure. Yeah. Double auth. Like yeah. I gotta they like get the double authentication. And forget my password. I gotta reset my password. Stupid. Which is hard to do with Aura. Yes. I, I, have, I have not forgotten that password. I have, like twice. Oh, that sucks. Mm-hmm. I have it. That's rough. Yeah. Almost memorized. Again. Sounds like that's never happened to you. <laughs> uh, it's happened once. I was like, wait, should I have, do you have access? I do. Okay, yes. just make it. <laughs> we're assuming. I'm just we're assuming. I'm in the club. Yeah. That's what we're talking about, the club. The club. Yeah. The unqualified club. Dude, I had access years before I was technically already qualified. And that's where the password reset challenge came in. <laughs> I was a student. Same with Wizard. Yeah. I had access to Wizard back when I was like a tech. <laughs> so that's just, well. <laughs> I don't know. The best, this again may sound really weird because I'm not a Florida fan, but the best <laughs> database is Florida. Florida's got like their shit on lock. Like they have the public archaeology regions, they have multiple like divisions. Like it's insane how like good their laws are. 
for being Florida. such a Florida yeah. wiener. I don't understand it at all. So, it doesn't make sense. Like, no. how do we get that here? That's another can of worms for another date that I would like to talk about. How do we get that here in the Northwest? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, like, yeah. we're so open and we're, like, so, like, gung-ho, but everyone's like, no, don't do that. Like, And Florida has had just governor after governor of, like, really, really bad people yeah. like, anti-preservation, pro-development. Yeah, like, it's got to be like, so separate, is my it, guess. Anti-indigenous. Like, it's be, yeah. yeah, but, like, it is funded by their state legislator. Like, like everything is... Yeah. No, that's why my brain just broke. That's okay. Yeah. No, it's all good. But, yeah, that's the best one I've seen. Ironically, of course, California, who we always think of as like the liberal. <laughs> oh my God, what a mess! You can't go online for their stuff. What a right? Mess. No, you no. have to go to their. You have to go to one of is it nine information centers? I think so. Yeah. The state's broken up into districts that have yeah. information centers, and the information center is. Uh, it depends on the yeah. <laughs> they each do their own thing. Some are some have a, a like uh, computer that you can sit down on and do your your record search. Some will do the record search for you. Some are not digital at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those are my favorite Wonderful. ones when I'll get a it looks like a black and white photocopy with grainy size, as hell. Grainy as hell. Is it like highlighted? It. Yes, highlighted. Yeah. And the sites that are in. The APE and out of the APE are handwritten in the margins. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get back, one other segue is just, it reminds me of how like, even though like the most liberal of states tend to have actually the like least liberal cultural resource policies. Yes. Like yes. I don't Weird. understand the disconnect. And then we have now the influx of green energy. Great, awesome. But it's also super detrimental to mm-hmm. cultural resources. It's yeah. so disjointed. Like I had a tribal member approach me and they're like, we understand this is going to be a solar farm and you're not privy to the solar farm being built, but there are more being built in this area, which can cause more damage in the future yeah. to sites that we know about. Mm-hmm. And yet they're so disjointed that people don't see the full landscape of yeah. the impact of like, and a lot of cultural resource archaeologists are in, by the time an archaeologist enters the workflow of a project, it's often too... <laughs> Jesus. It's so loud, Kirsten. You can move that to open. Do you have to do it right next to the microphone? God. You just oh, move man. it to the open the can of worms sequence. You're good. There we go. Yeah. Doing our own sound effects. I was waiting for you to like have a pause. <clears throat> No, it's all good. (laughs) Oh, but like in terms of like, like you're saying tribal members will approach you and say like, hey, we know about these solar farms happening. Um, By the time they hear about it, you know, it's too late to have done productive and proactive outreach to tribes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of times by the time archaeologists enter the project, it's also too late to, to have done productive outreach for a project and so like you know i'm not alone in this but like one of the one of the things that i do in my day-to-day job is i try to find companies that are doing development type projects 
and catch them early enough mm-hmm. so that we can enter the workflow of a project when it is like the appropriate time to start doing outreach to agencies, to tribes, mm-hmm. to the local community. Um, because that means that you're like, to the client, the value proposition is you're de-risking the project. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's going to be more challenging up front, but it's going to save you a ton of money at the, at the back end because mm-hmm. if you go through your entire project and, and you've paid for uh, <clears throat> a, a whole like cultural resources, um, endangered species, wetland delineation, like the entire NEPA process, if you pay for all of that and then you get to the end and then you start hitting challenges in review because then you've started your, your stakeholder outreach, you're in trouble. Like you've done everything mm-hmm. backwards. Like you mm-hmm. should yeah. be doing your stakeholder outreach at the that, beginning well, of the project. They just want to check the boxes though. They think it's a box item. Right. Yeah. Until and you actually start like having yeah. the conversations like, oh, this is more than just checking the box. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing I feel like, speaking of education, <laughs> we should talk to incorporating cultural resource management education into engineering firms. Yes. Or into engineering yeah. Yes. Yeah, courses. That's see, that's what we need to do. We need to, to outreach to engineering programs and civil engineers, yeah. yeah. And be like, you know, hey, these are problems. You know, I'm sure that there's courses in environmental processes and other mm-hmm. sort of laws and cultural resources is like a well, this is something you have to do blip one day discussion, if that if it's even touched on at all. Well, yeah. I, I think the, the crazy thing is I took an, an, um, like an environmental management class and they touched on like NEPA, the National Environmental Pro- Policy Act <laughs> or Protection Act, I don't know. ESA, um, Clean Water Act, like all the different acts. And then they went, oh yeah, and there's this thing called NHPA, National Historic Preservation Act. It, it happens yeah, but these like, things are we don't important. understand it we don't like yeah, it yeah but it's it's there and I'm like whoa <laughs> that thing has more teeth than NEPA does like yeah yeah. why is this not more cohesive or more understood because like all these other things NHPA still has to happen you can't finish NEPA without section 106 yeah it's an integrated part of it yeah. and people don't understand you can do section 106 without NEPA Ironically, with all of the streamlining you were talking about during the the Trump era, um, they had reduced the NEPA um, required, like evaluations required by biologists, but they forgot about the cultural resources. So we still did (laughs) (laughs) evaluations at the Forest Service. Suckers! (laughs) When it was like the trees were being neglected, but we still went and did our cultural resource service. Yeah. And it's it's just insane to think about how it's this like forgotten compliance law. And there's more, you know, you have Antiquities Act, you have NAGPRA, which I'm learning a lot about. Like we still don't, all of us don't like, regulate under it as much as we think we do like yeah. I've, I've been well, yeah. is like on the hand a few times but. it's also one of those things that like it's presented as sort of in the past mm-hmm. or it applies with things that already exist and I think for the longest time at least in teaching it because this was my experience is the glossing over of the practice now like what happens when you find something in the ground? Well, yeah. <laughs> that still applies. 
um, but it's different than uh, NHPA and only try, uh, applies to um, Native American tribes, which is continental U.S., and I think Native Hawaiians. Native Alaskans is a different pot of soup. Mm. Yeah, and I learned, people can tell me now, like, duh, that's stupid, but I learned the difference between post-discovery and inadvertent discoveries. Mm. You only use inadvertent discoveries under NAGPRA. You can only use that terminology. Oh. Post-discoveries is when you've done the survey, you find something else, it's post-discovery. I yeah, used, I accidentally used the word inadvertent discovery and gave mm. someone a heart attack thinking that we found human remains human remains and they're yeah. like don't you dare do that to me <laughs> just so you know and they gave me the full and i'm like thank you i i did not know that that is a good point because i've like, had people use that. that term <clears throat> mm-hmm. interchangeably yeah, yeah interchangeably and... or ape and product area yeah those are different yeah ape is section 106 mm-hmm. and it has a specific definition yeah and yep. then there's the ape direct effects Mm-hmm. Direct effects and visual, and visual effects. effects. Oh yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, that one's forgotten about a lot. <laughs> We're gonna have to make a new run of koozies. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. Research yeah. protection laws. But again, like things that you don't come in contact with. Like it'd be nice. It would have been nice to understand the terminology. Like not having it applied immediately but being told okay these are the differences between an ape project area inadvertent discovery mm-hmm. and post-review discovery because legally when you start getting further along in your career that could be a misstep that could be that's mm-hmm. something you learn on the job and people like get on you and you're like wow i actually we actually should have known that yeah should have learned that in the past but no one teaches you. Right. And the challenge, I feel like, with the culture of archaeology is that people don't always tell you. Also that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of, like... Archaeologists are not good communicators. What? Ironically. <laughs> yeah. But this, this makes me think, like, so there are several cultural resource firms that have enough capital that they can be involved in education. Mm-hmm. Whether that's um, internships or you know sp- sponsoring one of their their employees to come and do a guest lecture or something like that, you know, trying to get into the ed- like education stream to start building the workforce mm-hmm. early on, mm-hmm. um, or like like we were just saying, if you're if you have you know an archaeologist. Um, going into a classroom and speaking about cultural resources, archaeology, or you know, job training, not everybody in that classroom is going to become an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. Um, not everybody in that classroom is going to become an employee of that company. But anybody who hears that that lesson or that guest lecture, like participates in that internship, will then be aware of you know what they need to know and you know maybe they go on to be an engineer maybe they go on to be um you know a land developer maybe they go on to be um you know whatever they know enough about archaeology that they know to call an archaeologist mm-hmm. and they know to like consult early and often <laughs> yes 
<laughs> if you haven't gotten the point, yeah. you should wait until the very last I hate minute. The oh shit call. <laughs> I hate getting the oh shit call. <clears throat> Oops, we messed up. We didn't call yeah. an archaeologist at the beginning of this project that definitely requires an archaeologist. Yeah. To get us out of trouble. Those yeah. are my favorite, right? Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh shoot! I had one that found a, a bowling ball. <laughs> and they were like, we didn't know if we should call you. And I was like, well, shut up. Just like, hey, we found a bowling ball. <laughs> just, just a heads up. But like, I think that also goes back a little bit to training and interaction and communication of like, mm-hmm. it's okay to talk about archaeology. It's okay to yeah. talk about what you do, what you know. It's okay to share that. Like, I feel there's still a bit of that guarded nature uh-huh. with archaeologists of like, I'm not gonna, you're not gonna understand. Like, no. I'm not gonna tell you. Between that and the my favorite one that I get, I got actually at a Halloween party recently that was like, that's so cool. Like, what, what's the best thing you've ever found? Just fine. That's 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 the way. And I'm like, I'm four beers in. I really don't want to answer these <laughs> questions right now. But like, learning to like navigate those conversations. Like, I, yeah, I joke yeah, with people. Yeah. I find a lot of golf balls <laughs> just to kind of like diffuse it a little bit. Like, yeah. it's not, it's not that glorious. My balloons. My oh yeah, yeah. I had a one that said congratulations on it, and I just yeah. carried it around <laughs> the entire survey. Like, congratulations. <laughs> You know, just like kind of diffusing a little bit, and how do you yeah. interact with people who like think it's no so idea. sexy and like, oh, you find like really cool stuff, and you're like, no, like this is actually what I I deal mm-hmm. with, and communicating that, and I feel like it breaks down those barriers a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, it makes people feel a little more on the same level of you. Like you'd be like, you actually probably know yeah. stuff about that I don't know about. Like, let's yeah. actually have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Like people are like want to talk about Neanderthals. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I half paid attention. Like, that's not my screen. <laughs> like you tell me, have you read stuff? Cool, that's awesome. I'll check that out someday. Like, yeah, trying to kind of. Oh yeah, people level. are always asking me like, oh, have you heard the recent thing about the Egyptian? Blah blah blah. blah. And, like, like, and I'm like, no. Yeah, I'll be like, cool. Do you do you have a reference? Like, I'd love to yeah. see what you read. That sounds like, interesting. Kinda... Yeah, tell me about it. I yeah. want to learn yeah. from you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like I know. Nothing, to be honest. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's been like that is very much outside of my wheelhouse, but thank you. Yeah. I can tell you how a flake is made, and that's really boring yeah. <laughs> to you, but it's really exciting to see. You want to talk about soil? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How old is that dirt? <laughs> I felt, okay, I went to Greece, not to toot my own horn, I went to Greece in October, and uh, all my friends were like, oh my god, this is so old, and I just... Totally wasn't thinking. I was like, I've seen older. <laughs> and they're like, Wow, you're so cool right now. And I was like, It's true. <laughs> it's like actually, all this stuff is really recent. Yeah, really I, was like, I was the shithead person. I was like, I'm an archaeologist. This is way too young for me. <laughs> oh yeah. They have written records. It doesn't even count. Yeah, they cheated. Right. They cheated. Totally cheated. Sorry. Yes. Oh, yeah. So not do not do that on a trip <laughs> with friends. Just be like, yeah, it's old. Oh yeah, and walk away. <laughs> Isn't that me? Yeah. Or I'd like go around a corner, and there's like we stayed in a place where it was like right below the Acropolis, and so they just had ruins amongst oh, wow. all the buildings. I'd be like, oh look, it's old shit, and just walk away, <laughs> just because I didn't want to like <laughs> geek out in front of them. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, that was my segue. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's next? <laughs> what else was in the notes? Um, oh yeah, what what else was in your can of worms, Chris? I think we've opened all the cans. Oh, we did okay. open all. The what cans. role should industry have in degree programs? We talked about. Um, internships guest lectures which are things that I do mm -hmm. um, you know like I I also do that for <clears throat> high school like mm -hmm. at, at the beginning of the pandemic I um, reached out to a bunch of my friends who were teachers uh, and some of my former teachers and I just said hey you need a, a guest lecture for archaeology or you know somebody to be like what does an archaeologist do mm -hmm. um, you know I'll, I'll hit you up and so it was like you know maybe like three or four times a year I, I just do a, a oh, wow. Zoom lecture for friends. Nice. Um, and it's always fun. Um, and students ask like questions I never would have thought of. Um, so it's it's always kind of a, a challenge. Start them young. Yep. Yeah. That's really awesome. Yeah, I did a couple of lectures and stuff for like my daughter's classes when she was little. But nice. Yeah. Yeah. I was at the Geological Society of America conference oh, yeah, a few enough. weeks ago in Denver, mm -hmm. and so cool. um, there's the GeoArc <laughs> division, and I got to talk with uh, Sam Kraus, who's the, um, I forget what her role is on the GeoArc division, um, but she hosted the, the GeoArc meeting, and I got to talk with her a little bit, and um, you know, she she hit on this topic too about how um, you know her students need to know about what the job prospects are because that also plays into enrollment numbers mm -hmm. in degree programs is like if students see a degree as being you know something that is a viable career for them to have then they're going to enroll in it and mm -hmm. I, I think that helps with like realistic expectations for archaeologists who are working in archaeology to be reaching out to students or even early career people and mm -hmm. you know offering some some education and, and mentorship and outreach and stuff like that um, but the there was one point from um, Jeff Atchell and Terry Klein's article they wrote um, <laughs> that there is an estimated 11,000 new full-time positions mm -hmm. in all CRM fields, 8,000 of which are archaeology positions, and 70% of which will require advanced degrees. Which comes down to like just shy of 4,000. Which those numbers, as Katie pointed out earlier. It's a sliver. So it's very small. Yeah. yeah. Don't apply to infrastructure. Yeah. Right. Specific projects. Or so, private sector. Or private sector, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's way more than that. So that all that is to say, like, you know, the I, I think the takeaway is there's plenty of jobs to be had in archaeology. And, you know, there's anybody who's listened to the show long enough has heard us talk about, like, you know, uh, we, we've got uh, such great benefits as shitty wages. Um, <laughs> you never get to see your loved ones or your parents. It's going um, really well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, no. Um, <laughs> we're supposed to sell this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is not <laughs> I'm not upselling right now. Um, you get to travel. <laughs> yeah, you get to travel to such exotic locations as Demopolis, Alabama. <laughs> 
Yes. Yeah, no, Beatty, Nevada. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. They have Western reenactions. <laughs> <laughs> I stayed in a Motel 6 there one time. Nice. Yeah. I think that was the only hotel they had there. I think so, yeah. Yeah. a burrow, walk across the parking lot. (laughs) Yeah, I I went from uh, Death Valley to Mm -hmm. the ghost town of Rhyolite, Mm -hmm. and then stayed the night in Beatty, Nevada, and then went right back through Death Valley the next day. Isn't that pretty close to the Clown Motel? Uh, The Clown Motel's a little north, but I have passed it on my way from Reno (laughs) to Beatty, (laughs) and it was pointed out clearly, like, you can stay there, and I'm like, why? <laughs> we all float down here. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. No. <laughs> it takes on a whole new meeting. Anyway, okay. you get stories. You get a lot of stories out of your experiences. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I thought I. No, but like, yeah, yeah, so like, there are a lot of downsides to working in the field. And I think, like, this are one thing that this article doesn't touch on, or at least not like fully enough, is that. The industry from where from where I've been seeing it, the industry is also at a turning point where we've been in a labor shortage for long enough that the companies that do have the capital to make these adjustments are making the adjustments mm-hmm. where pay is going up, mm-hmm. benefits are going up, job security is going up, like quality of life is going up, um, and you're hearing it from... The, the top leadership all the way down through the middle leadership is like, you know, the, the company that Kirsten and I work for, you know, we hear it from the CEO, the COO, all the vice presidents, all the way down to like, you know, the upper and middle management that, you know, like this is the number one mission that mm-hmm. a company that has a lot of capital is focused on is retention and recruitment. And yeah. so, you know, like it has become... It has gone from like a point where like in 2019 at, at the Agri conference, the labor shortage was, hey, this is something that's a little concerning to, you know, <laughs> like, here we are in 2022, we're like full blown crisis mode. We yeah. have to take this seriously. It's really priority number one. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what it's come to. And if the problem will be solved, it has, it just has to stay priority number one. Well, and I think from my perspective, from my point of view, as the project coordinator, I've seen a lot of smaller companies doing the same. Mm-hmm. And that, for us, results in techs not being available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because they they're are actually, yeah. Well, because they're recruiting people and signing them on full time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether, like, for the whole season and giving them benefits. And that was not and does not resemble uh, life as a tech as I knew it. I mean, it was very much bouncing from one company to the other. Zero benefits. I feel like I, I I think I remember talking to people like it was my full-time job off the clock or outside of, um, when, when I was outside of the field and I was home, I spent my, the hours that my daughter was at school visiting CRM firms in the city and bringing cookies or chatting them up or otherwise trying to engage and remind them that I was available and that I was there and the work that I was interested in. Yeah. So it was like this constant push and I think it was something like a third of my work hours for the year was just unpaid 
trying to recruit or push sell myself basically yeah um because as a single parent i couldn't go everywhere i couldn't go for a like three month project so i was constantly having to be like i'm available for short-term projects um i cannot be long gone for longer than a week um but i'm totally here and i'm your person um and that was a really hard sell because especially in my role now i can definitely see like it's easy to try and just go to the same like five people that are there all the time that are on long-term stuff and i try and keep because of my experience i try and keep my eyes open for people that were in are in similar situations um and that's harder to do to fill those people and the the companies that i worked for especially you know in retrospect I'm very thankful for the work that they did to get me the work that I was able to get to stay employed and in the field for as long as I was. Um, but I think, like you're saying, Chris, things are changing Yeah. Um, from small firms to large firms and people looking at archaeology straight out of undergrad have good employment prospects now, mm-hmm. um, very different from from where we were like you were saying, 10 years ago, and yeah. date myself five years ago, <laughs> last year. Um, but are we like, in a sense, like at a tipping point of that change? Like I, you hear the rumblings, we've heard the rumblings for many years now of like change needs to happen, something's yeah. got to change, and we're, are we finally at that tipping point of like the, the firms giving full-time benefits to mm-hmm. like actually retaining people and none of this float culture of bouncing around different firms like actually having people staying within or working for agencies like having that stability well we have that i think we're getting there some firms um still just do straight on call which we do um for a lot of our um our uh field folks and i mean we during the field season we keep them pretty well Mm-hmm. Um, employed, I think, or um, but Just let him know. <laughs> Send him an email. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other side of that too is the like you're saying the the benefits, the the other pieces rather than just like full hourly stuff. Um, looking at long term like most techs that are in it for the long term don't look at the long term and people who want to move up in the world may not necessarily want to get a master's degree and that circles back i think to our earlier points of like we need to be able we need to have clearer avenues because there are avenues and this varies by state but we're in oregon currently and i am most familiar with oregon's (laughs) avenues (laughs) There are avenues for people to move up in the world with their bachelor's degree. Yeah. Um, but in some ways, it's harder to prove that you have the experience. It's harder to to make that case or to convince your upper management that you need to be given the opportunity to make that case to the state that you're qualified. Um, there are other states in the country where you don't need a master's degree to do f- field yeah direction and various other things or you don't need a bachelor's degree in anthropology to work as a field tech which 
is troubling in my mind. But um, <laughs> another can of worms. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's another thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot of potential. I think there's a lot of room for growth. But I think we're getting somewhere slowly. Um, and some of that also, I think, in some way, comes in a context under the tsunami of the ethical conundrums that the SAA has been undergoing for the yeah. last several years. <clears throat> it's forced a professionalization across the board. So yes. like in terms of like for SAA, I, I think to relate it to like private industry terms is, is like more like HR considerations, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. But even like smaller firms that don't even have HR staff, um, are having to think very hard about, you know, like what are, you know, what is an appropriate code of conduct? Like, and, and so there's just been this across the board professionalization of like all levels of, of business. Yeah. And with that comes the ability to hold others accountable. Yeah. Because that was one of the big things with the sexual harassment challenges that SAA was. Uh, bombarded with in 2019 and forward um, and other parts. I mean, it was a conversation from like 2017, I want to say, um, and forward that was actually being done at the SAA where there were sessions discussing these issues um, that were, there was a lot of like, okay, cool, we can address this with professors, we can address this with like direct supervisors, but what about the field techs? Like they move from company to company and there's no way to hold people accountable because you're gonna encounter the same people at other companies and you don't know who you're going to be working with until you get there most of the time. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this is a big step in, in addressing that issue is being able to employ people for at least a full season full-time and give them the tools that if there are issues you can make grievances and have them followed through on because that yeah. is or has been um, a bigger issue in the long term that's finally being addressed and I know on at least a couple of cases that has pushed people out of the field mm -hmm. that has pushed people away from archaeology um, and field sciences generally it's been an issue um, because of the lack of accountability so yeah I'm getting there it should Once, be faster but yeah it's a shoulda coulda woulda <laughs> <laughs> well as people retire and new generations come in you know shit changes waiting for that right. revolution to happen. <laughs> yeah. Revolution. We're leading it. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is a good place to wrap up the episode. Yeah. Good yeah. talk. Yeah. Excuse Thanks me. for having us. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs> uh, but don't take my word for it. <laughs> Enjoy this ASMR of eating peanut butter filled oh houses. I had to explain that to my mom <laughs> the other day. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how to tell you. It's people eating. It's just like the sound. <laughs> Adrian and I got into a conversation about ASMR, I think it was last night, where it was... Um, 
were we watching? White Lotus. Have you seen that? The new episode? The new season? The f- we were watching the first season, first season because okay. I was watching the second season. I think there's only two episodes out so far. And there was a there was like a thing that happened and I was like, I don't understand what's happening. And she goes, you have to have seen the first season. Mm. And I go, there's a first season? Yeah, I, I like it's came so good. Brand new. And so I was like, I gotta watch this. So like we, we went back and watched it and there's... Um, there's a scene where like um, the two teenage girls are are like they're really high or something and they're just making like sounds oh, yeah. next to each other's ears and so we start talking about ASMR and how like it, it, to both of us like 99% of ASMR is just annoying as shit <laughs> it's just people making sounds or like whispering into a microphone and I'm just like, all of this is so annoying. I hate it. <laughs> and, and so she was like, what is ASMR supposed to be? And I was like, do you ever hear something, like music, whatever, that gives you goosebumps? And she goes, yeah. And I go, that is ASMR. It's like, I forget what it stands for. It's like auditory stimulus, mm-hmm. motor response or something like that. And There's response in there. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's where like you hear something and like you have a physical response to it, like involuntary physical response. And I'm like, ninety nine percent of the, like the shit that I hear on like ASMR videos is is just like, I I'll put it on for like a second just because I'm curious. I'm like, yeah. what is this thing? Mm-hmm. I'll put it on. And I'm like, this is so annoying. I <laughs> it doesn't even make my skin crawl. It's just like I'll put it on. And I'm like, this this is silly. This is a waste of time. Well, part of me is like, this is what life sounds like. But why don't you actually go to a restaurant and just like listen in to people? Or, you know, yeah, are people that detach from reality? Yes. And that's where it gets to people, especially people in their early 20s and teens, being isolated mm. for two years in the pandemic. Mm. They have very few interactions with other people. And a lot of these things that are day to day, I think to the rest of us, just kind of get. They're like. It's like if you. After a long summer, you go up to Mount Hood, and the sound of snow crunching under your boots catches your attention. Mm. I can picture that in my head right away, and I'm like, that makes me happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, I think it's like that. This the snow under boots is is an ASMR. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Versus someone who lives in Vermont that has to like sweep snow off of their roof every day or whatever bullshit like (laughs) (laughs) I know I have to deal with. Um, I've heard stories from people who live in the Northeast and I just have no. I love living here because I can choose how I engage with snow. (laughs) Yes, you get you get to go to it and you get to leave it. I've lived in parts of the country where you don't get to choose. Every time I've lived in those parts of the country, there comes a point every winter where I go, why do I live here? There's no point in me living here. I hate this. What am I doing? Does that happen to you when you're here and it starts snowing? You're like, I need to clear pathways? Because that happens to Keith. I have no mean, He's just like, I must clear everything. And I'm like, it's okay. It's not sticking. He's yeah. like, out there. Yeah. He's like, but it's going to ice. I never ice. thought about yeah. that, but yes, I have a snow shovel. Yeah. And I... Like, what was it last? It was something around like last Christmas. We had like a big snow, and then we had another big snow like mm-hmm. super late in the year. Yeah, it was like, like April, March, or April, March, yeah. <laughs> and I cleared my whole driveway, cleared the sidewalks, and then I just started 
clearing neighbors' driveways <laughs> and neighbors' sidewalks, and I was like, no snow, <laughs> yep. none of it. Yep, we have we have the the ice de-icer to go on her steps. He's just like out there, yeah. like <laughs> it's like, real pretty in the grass. It can stay in the grass. Mm-hmm. The dogs have a great time. They roll in it. They go crazy. Yeah. No, off of all paved surfaces. Yeah, so Nate brought home from Georgia a number of years ago a weeder. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. A weeder? A weed burner. A weed burner? Yes. Oh, like the flamethrower. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can't really use those here. No, he uses it for snow. So we have I can that just see in the driveway or in the, the the shed. So he'll break out like that and carry the propane tank. Like, <laughs> <laughs> do not let Keith know that he has that because he will want to use it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Wherever around each other, he starts bringing it up and be like, I'm not going to it now. Let's play a game. Right. So yeah, he's, he knows not to use it for weeds, but he uses it to de-ice the front steps. <laughs> That's so funny. That's amazing. Uh, so on the next episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast, I think we said to record Thursday, right? Yeah, Thursday yes. at 5 p.m. Um, we're going to have uh, Paulina Priscuba. And we're going to talk about social media mm-hmm. and the potential Twitter meltdown that's happening. No, I'm, I'm, it's been entertaining to follow like, am, the Twitter I, meltdown. I'm, I'm so glad I don't have it. Twitter because I'm just like, sounds great. Yeah. yeah. No, I hear a lot of archaeologists are moving to Mastodon. What's whatever Mast- that is. I hate I Mastodon know. so much. What is Mastodon? Sorry, I, like I feel a, like a Luddite. It's <laughs> like a <laughs> shitty, like, it's a mashup between like the early, early old school version of Twitter and I don't know, like Reddit. No, but it's like the the user interface and the user experience. It just really sucks. Mm. And it sounds perfect for archaeologists, right? Like we're <laughs> we're glutton for punishment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This thing sucks, and I hate it. Sign do me it. Up. Let's use it. Why do people not want to interact with me? Yeah, this sucks. Yeah, and then the other thing about Mastodon is like there's servers, right? Mm-hmm. So like you join a server, and um, uh, so you're not interacting with the other servers. You can interact with the other service. So you, oh, okay. if you know who you want to interact with, mm-hmm. you can interact with people on any other server. However, if you're on a server, you're kind of like, if you're just, there, there are things called toots instead of tweets. So if you're just tooting out into the void, you're tooting to your own server. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, it doesn't really guarantee like an audience, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, you can follow other people, um, mm. but in terms of like it being a tool for like outreach and engagement, I don't know that it has the same kind of um, thing going on. But the concern with Twitter is like with the change of ownership, you have um, 
you're you're also not guaranteed to have an audience mm-hmm. anymore because they're changing the whole algorithm setup. They're changing mm-hmm. the whole like you've got to pay to play kind of thing now. Yeah. Um, so it's a big deal, and uh, like Paulina and Bill are, are way more knowledgeable about this stuff than I am. I've gotten to the point now where like I have barely touched Facebook in three years, mm-hmm. and I hardly touch Twitter anymore. Yeah, like my Instagram's hooked to my Facebook, so like if anything gets pussed, pussed. <laughs> posted. No. That's what, you, that's what you call a post on Instagram. It's a post. Oh. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> and then it gets posted on Instagram, it gets put on to Facebook because my dad is not on Instagram, he's on Facebook. Facebook yeah. So I just like have it pushed that way. But I don't, I don't touch. I feel like that's Facebook is sort of this becomes like <laughs> for everyone to be able to communicate with their long lost relatives that don't really talk to anyone. A million dollars when you die. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram rarely. I have, my social media game has dropped significantly. I have a tr- Twitter account because of women in archaeology uh-huh. who's on it used to be on it far more often uh we've all moved forward in life yeah we've all gotten old at this point we've been doing it for six years now and uh yeah we're all married two of us have kids and uh the other lives in a different country continent so you know we're eight time zones apart between Lee and Chelsea now so it's hard to we got one basically time slot a week that we try and hit when we make yeah. recordings but it's like once a month and uh, it happens but yeah they were talking about the Twitter because Chelsea's on Twitter more than the rest of us Having littles, you know, watch that shit. I don't know. Um, I'm always lost, no matter how often I feel like I check it. Yeah. So I'm like, I might as well just check it once a week. See, and I'll stumble across random conversations, like the one between, I don't remember, it was you and, like, um, um, Kate. Kate Elberg? Yeah. Yeah. About like it was really silly is all I remember most of my conversations with Kate are pretty silly (laughs) (laughs) I think we've both been like fully like our brains have been completely burned out on Twitter that now it's the only way we can engage with it well it's it's hilarious because there aren't very many people I follow on Twitter you and Kate are one of them and for whatever reason like, <laughs> I always when I'm on I'm like oh look there's a, a whole thread of like 20 tweets between you guys <laughs> and they're just yeah, hilarious we're talking about like farts or something <laughs> they're fucking like... hilarious shit oh god I think it is like something with like Exactly, but it was just I'm like at the end I'm like I'm so glad I opened Twitter today because I found this. And I think that's what I left at the end, and you were like, "Yay!" Okay, bye. <laughs> like, sorry. And then yeah, 